Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 19th chapter. John chapter 19, we are continuing our study of the life of the apostles, molded by the Master, looking at how Christ took these men. It's a fascinating study to see how he took these men, and as we look at their career, we observe their transformation, we get these windows that Scripture gives us into their lives. It, it's, it's helpful for us, I think, because we can relate. We can relate to their struggles. We can sympathize with their failures. We can smile at their foibles. Uh, we can relate to so many aspects. But more than that, we see the transformation of those that were the closest human associates with Christ during his earthly ministry, of how his life impacted them, and then how we can learn from that. And Jesus had a special bond with these men. And the man in, that we're going to study this evening in particular, the, the Apostle John, and I want us to consider him this evening, he, he is one of the sons of thunder, and yet he becomes known as the, uh, the Apostle of Love. And that transformation did not take place overnight. I've had you turn to John chapter 19. I would like us to start here and then kind of rewind and look at his life. We see how he has developed at this point and then go back and see where he was. In John chapter 19, look with me at verse 25. John 19 verse 25. It says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. This is a picture that is, that is saturated with emotion. It, it, it drips with empathy. As you see Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who had had the greatest of all privileges as she bore the Christ child, now she's also facing the greatest of all sorrows. She's watching her perfect, sinless son die a humiliating and excruciating death by the hands of those he came to save. It says he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. And what a horrible situation this was for her to be there and, and not able to do anything. And yet with this, now as he is dying, he turns to this disciple and entrusts his mother to the care of the apostle John. A man that does not name himself in the gospel that bears his name. He identifies himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. Now, that is not the kind of title that somebody would naturally just give themselves. Now, you might say it about somebody else, or maybe sometimes in a family and trying to 
annoy a brother or sister, mom loves me best. But that would not really be what the apostle would say. And it's not the kind of title that someone else would say of him. So obviously it's a description that's under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word and holy men of God spoke as, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But I, I like the portrayal the Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible gives in, in talking about John that he may have used it really as a statement of humility to emphasize the truth that Jesus loved him. And that was what made the difference in his life. That going from a son of thunder to the apostle whom Jesus loved, that he really caught what we saw in Ephesians 5 this morning as dear children. But understand that, that John did not start that way. He's one of the most well-known and, and really beloved of the apostles. He played a major part in the early church. He's familiar to us and... He's the human instrument that the Holy Spirit used to, to pen a significant part of the New Testament. Aside from Luke and the Apostle Paul, John wrote more of the New Testament than any other person. We have the Gospel that has his name, we have three epistles by him, and then the book of Revelation. We see how he views Christ in the Gospel. We, we see how he dealt with the church in his epistles. And we also get a look at the future. He was a member of the inner circle. And although he was not the dominant member of that group, he was the younger brother of James and a frequent companion of Peter, he was one of those 12. In fact, in the first 12 chapters of Acts, you find him often with Peter. He was a ministry partner. And, and so we saw some things in James that we also find in John. He was from a prominent family. He was a fisherman, and he, we, he was a, a rugged man. Mark chapter 1, we considered a couple weeks ago that James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee, were mending the nets when Jesus called them, and they left their father, they left the boat, they, they left the nets, they left it all with the servants, and they followed Jesus. And, and so John was a man whose, whose skin would be bronzed by the wind and the sun of the life on the Sea of Galilee. His muscles would be toned from straining and casting nets into the water and then, then pulling these heavy nets loaded with fish back to the boat, rowing against the wind and wrestling a boat on, on the waves and then on shore. I mean, he would have had broad shoulders from man, maneuvering that boat in the surf. This wasn't a guy who needed to hit the gym. He didn't need a rowing machine. His life was a rowing machine. And, and I say that because sometimes we get the wrong picture of John. I would say discard the artistic portrayal of John that was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Of this pale-skinned, effeminate, droopy-hand person gazing up at the Lord with a Mona Lisa smile and dove-eyed stare. That is not John. And unfortunately, it's a very unmanly depiction it's a rather feminine portrait. In fact, it's the, that portrait that Dan Brown used in his Da Vinci Code to assert that the painting wasn't actually John, it was Mary Magdalene. And if you look at the picture, it's like, well, yeah, I can see where he might get that. I don't think John and Mary Magdalene ever got confused for, for being each other. That was not him. 
I mean, this, this was a friend of Peter. I don't think Peter had fr- wimpy friends. And what we see is that, that really is a caricature. And I say that because sometimes we think, okay, he's the apostle of love, so therefore he must have had more of that feminine quality. No, there's a manly quality to biblical love. And our culture doesn't understand that. But we learned several things about John as we, we, we looked at him. That he's the younger brother of James. He's always named second when they're, they're mentioned together. He was the son of Zebedee and, and Salome. We saw his name or his mother's name in other passages. We found that he was known by the high priest in Jerusalem, and we'll look at that a little later. And when we compare the passage we just read in John 19, verse 25, with Matthew 27, 56, and Mark 15, 40, where John, where John states that Mary's sister was there, the name given in the others would appear to be Salome. That would make John a cousin of Jesus. And when you compare these passages, we, we can get these pictures into his life. His, his name, John, is the English pronunciation for Jonah. In Hebrew, or Jonahan in Greek, it means dove in Hebrew and the Lord is gracious in Greek. But almost everything we observe about the background of James is true of John as well. And they're really inseparable in the Gospels. We see that, and we see that in these accounts. And we considered where in Mark chapter 3, where the apostles are called, and in, in verses 16 and 17, we find the three that the Lord renames. And they're all there together. The, that, that renaming of, of Peter, Simon, who he gave the name Peter, and then the sons of Zebedee, John, and, and James, James and John, the sons of thunder. Boanerges. And, and so we talked about this when we considered James, but to keep in mind that, that the, you know, he's the second half of the dynamic duo. They knew how to liven things up. They, they had spunk. They, when they went someplace, things happened. And, and you see people like that. Years ago, I, when I was a youth pastor in Michigan, we had a, we had a number of guys in the youth group that they would make things happen. And one summer we were doing an evangelistic outreach and we had a, some other evangelists come in and I told them, I said, now if you ask for our group's attention, they will give it to you. But let me warn you, you better be ready to do something. Because if you get their attention and you're not ready, there are other people who are ready. And it's not going to be malicious, but th- things will happen. Well, they didn't listen. And I'm standing in the back and they asked our group to quiet down. They were used to teams that you have to call three or four times and the group quieted down and then they're up there talking about what they're going to do next. And two of the guys stood up and they started running a program. And I'm laughing. I said, like, I warned you guys, you didn't listen and they're not doing anything malicious. They're having fun and, and you're going to have to figure out how to get back with this. James and John were that kind of couple. I mean, these were the brothers that would make things happen. John was right there with James when they wanted to call down fire and torch the inhospitable Samaritans. And we considered that story, and I'm not going to walk through that again, but they really were taking the spirit of Elijah, who, who when there was that disrespect, called down fire. And they said, they're, they're disrespecting our Lord. Lord, can we do that? And their hostility toward the Samaritans was intensified because of their love for Christ. 
They saw that mistreatment, but their unbridled zeal in wanting to confront rudeness with annihilation didn't show the heart of the Lord. John was one who was willing to mix it up with the rest of them. He was in on the debates, who will be the greatest? I I wonder if all of his life was kind of lived in competition with his older brother of always trying to keep up or maybe get ahead. And, and, and you see this, and then we'll look at it in a little while, but uh, in John chapter 20, as they go to the tomb and they're running, it's, it's, it's the unnamed disciple and Peter. And it says, and the other disciple outran Peter and got there first. Basically, John said, I won. <laughs> All of life is competition. He was passionate. And and so when we understand that, there's one time he appears alone in Scripture. He's usually with somebody else, John, with James or Peter or Jesus. But there's one time he really speaks alone, and and it shows, again, that need to develop a quality of love. He tells the Lord that he had rebuked a man that was casting out demons in Jesus' name because he wasn't part of their group. That's where we see him standing alone. And and I I lay this out so we understand this love is a quality that he learned from the Lord. Left to himself, I think John was capable of being narrow-minded, unbending, and even reckless. But he was passionate. He was passionate about the truth. And and I want us to see that. He was a man who was passionate about learning truth. He he had a desire, a commitment to the truth. He He had a Jewish upbringing. I wonder if he had become disillusioned by the hypocrisy that he saw in, in the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so he followed John the Baptist. And it wasn't because John was popular, but he was willing to follow him. And it appears it happened very early as he's concerned about, the spirit, the, about truth. If you want to turn back to chapter 1, I've given you that passage on the, the screen. But in, in John chapter 1, we find this commitment to the truth. And it's interesting because in John's gospel, he uses the Greek word for truth 25 times. Another 20 times in his epistles. There was a commitment that he wanted to know what God says. But in John chapter 1, look at verse 35. It says, and again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. John The apostle never designates John the Baptist that way because he's not naming himself. But John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which was to say when translated teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We never get the name of the other one. And so again, we would see that as as John because apparently he was standing with Andrew when he heard that statement, Behold the Lamb of God. And, And he never forgot that. In fact, when he penned the book of Revelations, we find that he calls Jesus the Lamb of God 27 times. And it's interesting to see how he uses that phrase. He speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. Not normally what we would think of when thinking of a Lamb. He talks about the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That he belonged to the Lamb of God. 
I think in, in John we see a diamond in the rough that is being crafted by the hands of the master jeweler. His zeal at times lacked knowledge, but he was never passive. He was aggressive, he was competitive, he had a commitment to the truth, but he was also capable of change. He was a man who was willing to change. He was willing to make the adjustments in his life. He, he struggled with that human desire for greatness that the other disi- disciples had. He wanted to be noticed. And, and he argued with them. When Jesus taught, John was the one that was there when he said, you've got it backwards. If you want to be great, you serve. And we, we see that in Mark. If you want to turn over to Mark chapter 9, because you've got an interesting discussion here, and I want, want us to see the flow of this text, because I, I, I think it may give us another window into the, the life of John. And in Mark chapter 9, really, l- let me start back in verse 33. I know I've put 35, verse 35 on the, the screen, on the slide, but to get the context, it says in verse 33, then he came to Capernaum, And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you were disputing among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. So that's that's the context. Now verse 35, And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now notice what John says in verse 38, and I've already alluded to this, but to see the context. Now John answered him saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives a cup of you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. What John confesses to here was really a high-handed move. And, and apparently all the disciples were in on it. Because notice what it says in verse 38. He says, teacher, we saw. I mean, it, it's, it would appear that they're in this together. We forbade him do this. And so it, it looks like they're all there. But I really wonder if all of a sudden John is getting a tinge of conscience. If he's convicted. I mean, this was probably a sincere, honest man. And yet they viewed him with suspicion. You know, he, he's not one of us. We haven't seen him in our group. And, and he, maybe he's not our kind of person. Isn't that really what the Samaritans had said? That John wanted to call down fire? I mean, the attitude wasn't all that different. You know, I, I, it's good that we allow Scripture to define the boundaries and not our cynicism. Now, we have to be committed to truth, and we'll see that. But, but I do wonder if he didn't feel a con- conviction and there wasn't an element of confession here. Because the Lord has just rebuked them on their desire to be the greatest. And he said, well, Lord, you know, here's something we did. And I, and I think there's an Ill- aspect that he's willing to grow. He's willing to learn. 
You know, and it's a, it's a good reminder for us. Be strict with yourself and gracious with others. But John was capable of growth. We see him mature. His character had, had weaknesses, but they become strengths. You know, some people tend to defend themselves and, and their kids and, and never press toward the mark. There's always a defensiveness. Well, you know, there's an excuse for this. There has to be a capacity for growth. We, we think of John in his elderly aged years as that tender-hearted elderly apostle. He was the elder statesman for the early church at the end of the first century, but that's not where he started. He had to grow. And it's a reminder for all of us, don't allow a snapshot of your life to direct your destiny. I've, t- I've told our, our, our faculty, both in our academy and the college, and that none of us would want to be judged by certain snapshots of our lives. All of us have things that we wish weren't in our past, that we wish we could go back and and undo or redo or do differently. We can't. We can't change our past, but don't allow the past to determine our future. And I think that's what we see in, in John. John is a man who was maturing in his walk with the Lord. Are we maturing? Are we striving to grow? Are we looking at at how we can develop? You know, is our walk one that honors the Lord? We're considering that in, from Ephesians, but realize, you know, we have apps and devices that count our steps. But they don't calculate whether or not we're walking in the Spirit. We can, they can even measure our gait. I look at my phone sometimes and it tells me how far apart my steps are and, and how balanced. It's like, how does it know that? You know, it may be able to measure my gait, but not my godliness. It can measure our movement, but not our maturity. We have to look into God's Word to learn that and to see how we're developing and to see that this was a man who grew. He grew personally. He grew in his faith. He grew in his confidence and faith. One of the things that we don't really see in John is that he was a man of doubt. You know, he had struggles. He had excessive zeal. He, there were times he questioned, but we don't really consider him that way. He's one of the first two disciples along with Andrew. And when all the others forsook the Lord, and John did too, it doesn't appear that he went very far. In fact, let me have you turn now to John chapter 18. The chapter opens with the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And both the Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us that all of the disciples fled. So it wasn't some of them, they all fled. But it's interesting because notice verse 15 now in John 18. It says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard to the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her, who kept the door and brought Peter in. And what will follow then is Peter's denial. But this unnamed disciple, who would be John, was known to the high priest. And that's why we say he came from a prominent family. If the high priest in Jerusalem knew who John was, there's something about the family relationship here. And and we see that even when he struggled and he forsook with the rest, he didn't go far. He was there when Jesus was taken in. When Peter's denying, John is there with the Lord. 
He had a capacity for great faith. He, he was quick to go to, the resur- to, to believe in the resurrection. Just let me have you turn over to chapter 20. In chapter 20, we see this, his going to the tomb. In verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. Verse 4, So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooped down and looked in and saw the linen cloth lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloth but folded together in a place by itself. In verse 8, Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know or understand the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. That it would appear that John was the first disciple to believe in the resurrection. Even before all the pieces came together, he got it. He was quick to believe. He was quick to recognize Christ. You see in chapter 21, just across the page or maybe over a page, that beginning in verse 1, it's telling how the Lord's going to appear. It says, after these things, Jesus showed himself to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the, the Sea of Galilee. In this way he showed himself. And now it's going to tell us. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. And they went out and immediately they got into the boat that night and they caught nothing. And when morning was come, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered, No. The last thing a fisherman wants to be asked when he hasn't caught anything is, Have you caught anything? And they said, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Verse 7, Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. He's the first to believe. He recognizes Christ. And, and we see that there's this growing love that he has for Christ. He's referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. He desired to be close to him. He's called the beloved apostle. He had a capacity to change, but the other thing I think is important that we not miss was he was willing to change. You know, some people are more concerned about perception than actually change. They're more focused on reputation than righteousness. And, and they want relief, but they don't actually want to change. And you find it sometimes in counseling or working with somebody, well, here's what you need to do, and, and there's a whole list of excuses why that can't happen. Well, here are some things that will help. And, and, and it gets to a point where they've spent more energy arguing than actually trying to change. That wasn't John. When problems were uncovered, rather than shifting the blame, he, he would look for ways to grow. 
He wasn't resistant. We, we know of his ambition that he desired to be a, a, a leader. He wanted prestige. He wanted to be the greatest. His, his mom came and, and, and they were there with him and said, well, would you let my son sit on the right and left? And we considered this with Andrew. And it's like that, that mother pushing his son, her sons forward. I've, I've met mothers like that. I've, I've met wives like that. And now we find him in the background. That's no longer where John wants to be. Instead of being the one who wants to be noticed, he wants Christ to be noticed. We know him for his ambition, but we also know him for being a servant. And we find that over and over, that here he's writing the gospel and he doesn't even put his name in it. John is the only gospel that doesn't list the 12 apostles. We pick up their names as we read through, but he, in in 21 chapters, doesn't name himself. In fact, he, in, in his three letters, the epistles, he doesn't name himself. He's only named in Revelation. And there, if my count is correct, there's only five passages. Three times in chapter 1, Revelation 21, verse 2, where he says, I, John, saw the holy city. In chapter 22, verse 8, I, John, saw and heard these things. He went from seeking status and recognition to seeking to direct the attention to Jesus Christ himself. His attitude really was, he must increase, I must decrease. And you find that even here at the end of John in in chapter 21. As Peter seeing him, and and it's saying in verse 21, verse 20, Peter turns around and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following the one who had been leaning against his breast at the Last Supper and, he, and, and asked the question, Lord, who will betray you? And so Peter says, Lord, what about this man? What's going to happen to him? This is after Peter's restoration. And he said, well, what's going to happen with him? And, and the, the Lord says, don't worry about him. Now, that would have been a great place for John to insert himself. That, you know, the Lord told Peter to knock it off. Mind his own business. Take care of his own affairs. But that's not what he says. He says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things that we may know this testimony is true. He said, I want you to know who Jesus is. Because he had a capacity to love the truth, but he also had a love for people. And that's where we find the growth. He didn't ignore truth. He still had a capacity and a heart for truth, but he grew in loving. There was a, there was a tempering of his, his spirit. It was not a softening of the truth. There, you know, some people consider mellowing, which is really just molding. They're, they're ignoring truth to ignore conflict. That wasn't John. But he became a man who truly loved those whom Christ loved. This wasn't a superficial, sentimental love. It wasn't a syrupy, sugary attitude. It was, it was a commitment to Christ, a commitment to truth, and a compassion for people. And what we find is that he demonstrated discernment with his concern for other individuals as well. He was was discerning but caring. He was a man of discernment. I I think we see in John the description, there was a book written many years ago, a man of steel and velvet. That solid character with a gentle touch. That zeal was tempered by a heart of love. But he was a man of discernment. He, he had a discernment about him, and, and that really comes, and we see it in antithetical thinking. 
That discernment thrives in an atmosphere of absolutes. And this is countercultural today. This is not where we live in our, our society. Jay Adams in his book called The Discernment said, Discernment thrives in an atmosphere of absolutes among people whose minds have been molded to think antithetically, to think in opposites, to see the, the extremes, to, to see the poles apart. And, and in a culture that sees everything as a shade of gray, that's not what we find with John. John was, John was a man who wrote that, that with God there are no gray areas. In him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5 And so in John's zeal for the truth, he's, he stresses the absolutes. He draws the line. His, his two favorite crayons are black and white. I mean, he talks about light and darkness. Life and death. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. The children of God, the children of the devil. The love of God, the love of the world. He talks about obedience and disobedience. This, this is John. He, he draws the lines. Let me have you turn to the epistle, 1 John. And I, I just want to jump through some of this and, and show you so that when you read these passages, you will see how John does this. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. There are many places that we, would, we can find this in the epistles. But I, I want you to be able to put your finger on these. Look at verse 3. It says in 1 John 2, 3, Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. Verse 9, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. Look at verse 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You know, this doesn't sound like that there's many ways to God theology that is so prevalent today. And, and you find John drawing these lines. What he's saying is what we considered this morning. It's not what the label says, it's what the life says. Chapter 3, verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. He, he's drawing these very distinct lines. Now, we know that Christians sin. John knows that. He says in, in chapter 2, these things I write unto you that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So he's trying to draw the distinction, don't do this, do this. But if you do the wrong thing, we have an advocate. But you find that throughout in, in verse, verse 10, chapter 3. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Chapter 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You see the distinctions. Well, there, there's a reason that sometimes unsaved people don't have a heart for the gospel. They find it boring. Say, I don't get anything out of it. That's what John's saying. And then in 1 John 5, verse 12, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. He said there aren't multiple categories. There's two. You either have the Son and therefore you have life or you don't have the Son and you don't have life. You see this, this antithetical thinking 
it develops discernment. There are two ways, God's way and all other ways. There are the children of God, there are children of the devil. There may be lots of world religions, but they all have the same father because there's only one true faith. And we, there's only through Jesus Christ that we can come to the father. And so we need to seek to discern God's ways from all other ways. It's really not our job to find all the places of agreement. Well, we agree with them on this and this. No, we need to make sure that we're agreeing with God. And John, the apostle of love, is is very clear in drawing those lines. And I I say this because we live in a a day where even for Christians, everything is viewed as various shades of gray. Well, Well, people have different opinions. Yes, and so the question is, what is God's opinion? How will we know? We have to be in God's Word. Because if we don't show discernment and we cloud the gospel, the Bible tells us if the gospel is hidden, it's hidden or veiled to those who are perishing. See, truth was his passion. He didn't make it fuzzy, but he had a passion for truth and a compassion for people. And what we see is, is really what he developed into. And understanding this, we can learn from John. I, I think what we see is, is the Lord loved him, not just for who he was, but for who he would become. That we need to be willing to change. That Christ loves you, not only for who you are, but he has a plan to mold you to be conformed to his image. We need to have a zeal for truth, but also a compassion for people. John learns this balance. If you want to look at the second epistle, 2 John, verse 1, it says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly. I have found some of your children walking in truth. And you find this throughout in in the third letter, the elder, verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. That's what we're called to, is that walk in truth. We have to be committed to principle. We have to be striving to grow, to live. We, we have to be committed to principle, but we have to have a compassion for people. But ultimately, understand that this change comes as we spend time with Christ. At the end of John's life, reliable sources indicate that John became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. But John had to bear a lot of grief. In a unique way, he, he was alive as all the other apostles were martyred, beginning with his own brother. And as an old man, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos under the persecution of Emperor Domitian, the brother of the successor to Titus, the one who destroyed Jerusalem. And on that island, as an old man, He was banished there so that he couldn't get anywhere. Surrounded by water, he writes, of heaven where there will be no more sea. That was the context. But I don't want to end with the mental picture of of that vision. I want us to come back to that picture at the cross. 
And as John is there, as Jesus says, Woman, behold your son. And turning to John and says, Behold your mother. And here is this rough man who was willing to call down fire from heaven, putting his arm around this grieving mother and taking care of her. As Christ hung on the cross, he still had concern for his mother, but he didn't turn to one of his half-brothers. He turned to the beloved apostle. He gave the commitment, the care of his, his mother to John. And to see Mary suffering this great grief, and here is this apostle, a son of thunder, who's become the apostle of love. How did he change? He changed because he spent time with Jesus Christ. He was molded by the Son of God. The Son of Thunder became the Apostle of Love. But if you're still in the epistles, look at 1 John 1. And I want to conclude with this passage. Because I think we see what changed John and what ought to change us. And in 1 John 1, it says in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which our eye, with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen, and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you may have fellowship with us, Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. What is John saying? He said, this is what we've observed. This is what I've seen. I've, I've watched. And I don't think John just took gl glancing looks. I think he studied the Lord. I think he gazed and, and would watch because he's saying, I, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, we, it was clear to us, it was manifested, and now we're telling you so that you too can have fellowship. He will mold us as we're in his word. If we're not being conformed to the image of the, his son, we need to ask, are we spending time, have we come to the cross? Are we meditating upon that? And really looking at, are we being changed? Are you being changed by modeling the compassion of the Master? John was molded so that he modeled the love of Christ. Clear with the truth, but compassionate with people. Oh, that we too would do that as we gaze upon the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of John, a man who who was molded as he spent time with you. Lord, we pray that we would spend time with you. Lord, that we would not look lightly on error, but that we would have a compassion for people, but a passion for truth. Lord, we pray that you would help us to meditate upon the life of John and his walk with you. And as we read through the gospel, his epistles and, and revelation to see how he changed from this, this son of thunder to the apostle of love, and that we as beloved children would imitate your love. That as we consider this morning from Ephesians 5, that we would be imitators of God as dear children, walking in love, that love defined by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, so that we would look to the cross and keep our eyes on him. For your honor and glory and praise, we ask this. Amen.